I'm Charlie Hall, and welcome to Polygon Backstory, a podcast featuring conversations about the games we play. There's so much news, so many announcements happening every single day in the games press that it's hard to keep track of them all. Every few weeks, I'll pluck an individual or a topic out of the stream and bring them here for you. This week, my guest is Layla Shabir, the CEO and co-founder of Learn District, an educational games studio. Layla is also the founder and director of Girls Make Games, a summer camp for young women. I first met Layla two years ago, just after the first Girls Make Games camp. Since then, it's grown to be a year-round series of international events. Here's some of my talk with Layla. I grew up in United Arab Emirates. My parents are of Pakistani descent. My dad was a labor worker for 20, actually, wow, by the time he retired, about 48 years. And they just moved back to Pakistan because you can't stay there unless you are from like one of the clans and you can't become one of the clans because you're not related by blood. <laughs> it's kind of complicated. Yeah, UAE is, in, in my understanding, a, a complex social place. They rely on a lot of foreign labor, I believe, to get done what they what they do inside the kingdom. And that was it. My dad was an underage. He was 14 years, 15 years old when he actually moved from Pakistan to, you know, build the city the way that it looks now. It was pretty much built on teenage labor in a way. That's incredible. So your father came alone with his family? Alone on a boat you know, in the 70s before the country was formed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of insane. His story, I hope to write a book one day, but it was him and both my parents pushing for a different future for us, you know. And I grew up in that town where education was really not a big deal. Most of my middle school friends were already getting engaged. I was supposed to be engaged. By high school, you were supposed to be married. Um, and I was sitting there, I was like, how do I get out of here? And so I kind of just went to the internet and started looking for, I don't know, I don't know what I was looking for. I was looking for friends, to be honest, so I could vent. And I found someone who, instead of not just being a friend and a listening ear, he actually gave me resources. And he told me about this thing called financial aid, which does not exist back home. And that's how I got to MIT, because I couldn't even afford a plane ticket. Tell me about that journey then. How old were you when you, when you decided to apply to MIT? Uh, I wanted to go when I was 13, <laughs> and they said, you got to wait a few years. So so initially, I tried applying at 13, 14, 15, and finally when I was 16, I'd taken my SATs and I was old enough. I had already been rejected at all the colleges locally because I was homeschooling myself. And if you homeschool yourself, you don't have a... There's no system in place. You can't go anywhere to certify that you actually are learning anything. Um, so they won't even take your application. So my only option was the United States where things, you know, anything is possible. That's what I was told. So I wrote a long letter to MIT saying, hey, I'm stuck here. You know, this is what's been happening. Look at my grades in school. You know, I can do this. Please let me in. And they actually not only took me back, but they actually wrote me a really sweet letter from the admissions office. It was like reading your a letter was great. This is why we do what we do. And I was like, oh my God, I found my people. 
yeah, no, this country means a lot to me, a lot, a lot. And I'm really excited. Like, in I think in the next eight months or so, I'm finally going to be a citizen. And I'm so excited about that. I'm hoping just in time to vote. <laughs> so then you went to MIT. And, and what did you study at MIT? Uh, nothing to do with games. I was an economist in training. I was supposed to get a PhD and become a professor. That was the track I was on. That's why I left. And you know, I was like, I want to teach people because that's the way to to make the world better. And economics made a lot of sense to me because it explained the world around you. Layla, how did you, how did you, an MI trained economist, come to found an educational media company? Again, goes back to the same thing where, you know, the internet started my journey to education. It opened up my world. Um, I'm very, very open to new things. So that's definitely one thing I'll say about me. When I met my um, husband, who wasn't, you know, my husband at that time, he used to play Halo, like, semi-professionally. And to me, that just made no sense. He actually made money playing Halo. And I played no games. And I looked down on him and I was like, what is wrong with your life? You're wasting your time away. And then it kind of clicked. He spends all this time playing games. He, he's actually a really smart guy. He's a mathematician. He does like math proofs in his spare time. I could take this, this passion for playing games and turn it into something good. Like kids are addicted to their phones. How do we get them to use this addiction for good? And so it kind of came out of several, several conversations with him. Um, you know, we arrived at this thing called learning is boring, playing games is fun, let's combine them in a way that it's passive. So that's the thing I'm really passionate about. I want to make learning passive because even the most avid learners, and that includes people like me, we get fatigued, you know, at the end of it when you're reading an essay. I would much rather watch a movie or listen to a song or read a poem, like something simpler. I think education is in an extremely inaccessible form, especially at schools. So if driven kids can't get to it, imagine the kids that have a lot of other things going on. You know, they have trouble at home, they have trouble with peers, they have health issues. You know, I think entertainment is, is the solution to this. And yet, you embarked on this journey, you, you started this company, you started this Kickstarter, you developed this team and started building assets and creating gameplay. And then you put that all on hold for Girls Make Games. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, it's on hold. It, that was not the plan at all. Like, I think back in 2014 when we spoke, um, Girls Make Games had just launched. It was meant to be an experimental thing that we did for one summer or, you know, a couple of weeks or something where I just wanted to see how girls play games. Because I was so new to the industry, like I had never been to PAX or anything and I didn't play a lot of games. My only source of knowledge was my husband and the six other boys that lived with me in the house who were part of our team. So it was pretty much all male team, right? And their response was, very close to girls don't like games. You know, I was like, why can't we hire more girls? Like every time we put up an ad, it's all boys applying, 20 something year old boys. Um, and yeah, their response was girls, you know, they don't, they don't want to study this. They don't, they don't want to do this. This is not interesting to them. 
I don't know, I just really like to find answers on my own. And so that was the summer experiment where, you know, we put out a call for girls who play games. I think my initial hypothesis was that when they're kids, both boys and girls play games because I played games as a kid. But somewhere along the line, when, you know, start turning 13, 14, there's a shift in priorities. You know, boys continue to kind of be addicted to their thing. And because it's so social, they still keep to, you know, get to keep their social circles. So when they get together with their friends, they play games. When girls get together with their friends, they don't play games. Like that's been one of the biggest drawbacks of, um, I think, the industry is when you're 13, 14, 15, your interests shift from, I don't want to stereotype, but it com- it still comes down to fashion. It comes down to boys. It comes down to like going to the mall, um, something else that's creative, but it's not playing games. You know, there's a very, very small number of girls that get together and play games. So that was the part where to me, you know, that's why I stopped playing. I didn't have anyone to play with. How big was that first camp? We had a capacity of 30. So the registrations ended up going to like 80 something to send everyone home. Now, I thought it would be hard. I thought I'd have to go from school to school, you know, passing out flyers. But, you know, Tim Schaefer tweeted about it. So that kind of, you know, I think we filled up the first camp literally within the first 72 hours. And this was, yeah, we didn't, we hadn't even existed before that. Pretty much all from the Bay Area, South Bay. So the camp was in Mountain View. And we had girls from Saratoga, from Berkeley, from San Francisco, just all over. Um, And I think the age group, the first group was between, they were on the older end. They were 10 to to 16. I didn't want to cap it too much because it was the first time. But yeah, those girls are very, very special to me because they're, yeah, they're our first batch. They stay close. They came back last year. Some of them came back as counselors. The emails and the letters that we got were so emotional. Like we have parents crying at camp at the end of camp. We have girls crying at the end of camp. It's very, very important to them that this thing exists. And I had no idea what I was, you know, getting into. And now we're a part of their lives. Like we have returning campers. 80% of our campers come back. So that means they have found their community. Like their parents write to us saying, my daughter is so excited that she now has friends like her. My daughter is so excited she's found her thing that she can do this for the rest of her life. Then in in how many cities around the world are Girls Make Games events going to happen in 2016? This year, this year it's uh, 15 cities. 15 cities around the world and then another 20 in the U.S. So 35 in to- 25 in total, my math is uh, We'll be going back to our usual, you know, Taiwan... Uh, Chile, Australia, Uruguay, UAE, Pakistan, India, uh, Bangladesh. The Middle East and Southeast, South Asia are easier for me just because I have personal roots there. Um, and then this year, finally, Canada. That's been something we've been trying to put together forever. So it's either going to be Toronto or Montreal or maybe both. Um, this is not summer camp, so this, is, this would be weekend workshops. And... Forgetting a few in Europe. I think there's Berlin, there's London. Uh, it's scattered all over Europe. 
but we we try to keep a oh Hong Kong yes that's another one in Asia we try to keep a good mix between the different regions but yeah it's it this year is actually super exciting for us because last year was kind of you know we launched a new curriculum which did really well and now we're able to expand it and I'm also well I don't know if it's on the down low because I was like who do I ask if it's on the down low it would be me. We're doing a digital curriculum this year. So later this year, after Camp's Madness dies,、uh, we would actually have an online curriculum that we're going to package and send out to thousands and thousands of people around the world to be taught in classrooms. What does Girls Make Games mean for you personally? Like I was saying, I, it, you know, every time I go to camp, I feel like a ten-year-old, and to me, that's that's the most wonderful feeling in the world because my childhood and everyone's childhood, I'm sure, is like special to them. So I think to me, when I was ten, the world looked like a limitless place, and as I got older, especially growing up where I was in the Middle East, it got smaller, and it felt like I was trapped. And while mine felt more geographic, socio-political, I think for a lot of girls. Over here, that that you know, shrinking of the world happens in terms of you know your your peers and your circles and just your perception of what you can do with your life. I think you know, once you step out of it, to us we might look you know look at them and say, "Hey, the world is your oyster. You can go do anything." But if you go into their mind, that's not how it looks. It looks very small. It's just what they see. What they see their parents doing. What they see on TV, what they see their friends doing, and the more data points you can provide them, the more exciting things that you can give them, the the more the world expands. And that's what Girls Make Games is to me. This is expanding their world in a way and keeping them, keeping them amazing and imaginative and creative, and not feeling like the world is closing down on them as they age. <laughs> You can find out more about Layla and her work at GirlsMakeGames.com, where registration for the 2016 series of camps, as well as information about scholarship opportunities, is available right now. Music this week is from the very first Girls Make Games project to be published on Steam. It's called The Whole Story, H-O-L-E, and it was made by a team of amazing young women called The Negatives. You should definitely check it out. You can find Polygon Backstory online at polygon.com/backstory and on iTunes. That's also where you can rate this show and leave a review, which would mean an awful lot to me. If you'd like to reach me, drop a line to Charlie at polygon.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Charlie underscore L underscore Hall. Thanks for listening.